This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It was a society like any other society, but also it was a society like no other society. It's, it's this inherent contradiction in East Germany that is, I think, that a lot of people find fascinating. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 36 of Cold War Conversations. Today we visit the Totally East Life in East Germany photography exhibition. Rundown facades, punks and ordinary workers, this exhibition shows the works of Harold Hauswald, who documented everyday life in the GDR. Now, I know this is the point you fast forward, but before we start, I'd like to thank our latest financial supporters via Patreon. These are John Smaha, Jim Jordan and Wayne Sherwood. They're really helping support the podcast by donating money and getting access to some exclusive extras. These donations can be as small as a pound or a dollar, and every donation helps keep us broadcasting and expanding the show. Just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. So back to today's episode, I walk through the exhibition with Dr. Richard Millington, who you will remember from our episode on the 1953 East German uprising. Richard has brought the exhibition to Chester in the UK, and as we walk round, we discuss the photos and have a wide-ranging conversation about life in East Germany. After our chat, there's some interviews with exhibition visitors who have some great reminiscences about the GDR and comments on the exhibition. We also chat with a couple of Cold War Conversation podcast listeners who came along too. That's well worth a listen. I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening. Right, I'm here today with Richard Millington in uh, Chester. Richard, you are... Um, I'm programme leader for German at uh, University of Chester. We're here for the exhibition that, that Richard has uh, put on on the, uh, the campus here, which is called Totally East, Life in East Germany. And it's a collection of photos of East Germany and probably not necessarily the um, sides of East Germany that people might be aware of. Richard, can you just talk us a little bit more about the exhibition? Yes, yeah, so the, um, the exhibition was created by the Bundesstiftung Aufarbeitung, which is the federal foundation for the evaluation of the SED dictatorship in Germany. And that's a government foundation. Um, so what happened was they got in touch with me via East Germany Online on Twitter and said, well, we've, put, we've got this exhibition, we've got an English version of it. Um, would you like to put this on at your uni? And um, I thought, well, it's quite unusual to have East German stuff like this in English because normally it's in German. 
so I said, yeah, that would be great. And they simply sent me a PDF and we organized the printing it and then putting it on in the in the Kingsway campus of University of Chester. I had based on the photographs of Harold Hausfeld, who was a photographer in East Berlin uh, in the 1980s. So what he did was he specialized in taking pictures of everyday life and it, they show the ordinary side of everyday life, but the extraordinary side of it as well. Yeah, no, I've been looking at the photos and they are extraordinary photos. If we can just uh, walk around and have a have a look at this. The, the exhibition is split into various categories. So there's sort of some of the more obvious ones around um, youth and power and things like that. But there's some more unusual ones such as loneliness um, and curiosity. But uh, anyway, we're looking at the the youth one. With Richard, can you uh, take us through some of this? Yes, yeah, so we've just got uh, different pictures of young people in in East Berlin at the time. We've got a picture of some punks. Um, this picture here down at the bottom, a picture of a guy in an FD, uh, an FDJ, Friar Deutsche Jugend shirt, is particularly a favourite of mine because he just looks so... He's standing in front of a parade. He's looking directly into the camera. He just looks so fed up. He, de- <laughs> he definitely does. Um, look fed up. We'll we'll have some uh, photos of the exhibition on the on the show notes um, because obviously um, we're trying to describe some very visual imagery here via audio. So we will do our best. Um, one of the ones I quite like here is is this one, Decay, which um, certainly when I visited East Berlin, once you walked away from the main streets, there was a lot of evidence of decay and uh, there's a photo here of the um, open air theater in the pioneer park in in berlin which was built in 1951 but by 1984 it is very overgrown and with weeds uh, growing out of the uh, the grandstands here now we we talked about punk um just on that other uh, board richard and uh, this one here rebellion looks really interesting yeah, so we've got different, um, well, we've got pictures of, I suppose, East German youths in, in rebelling, not open rebellion, maybe rebelling against what was expected of them as good socialist citizens. So we've got a picture here of someone with a mohawk haircut. We've got um, a concert by the band Freigang. It's, well, it's striking a very rock star pose here. Uh, so, so, yeah, maybe not obviously open rebellion against the state, but certainly not behaving um, how they might have been expected to behave. And we've got some of the text here talking about ripped jeans, sleeveless jackets, West, Western accessories. Um, so rebelling in in a way that, well, not not just the young people in East Germany would rebel, but or young people everywhere would rebel against what's expected of them. Yes, I think, you know, what these photos do reflect is that life in East Germany was not hugely different to life um, anywhere else in the world with um, youth rebellion. And I do particularly like uh, the photo Richard uh, commented on with a very Mick Jagger pose. Now, the next board we're looking at is is subculture. And this is an area that I spoke to um, Eileen Ford Price about on one of my previous episodes um, who lived in East Berlin because I was pr- surprised when she mentioned that uh, she knew somebody who was a squatter. And I wouldn't have imagined there were many squats in east berlin um no i i think that surprised me as well uh, you have this image that everybody was allocated a allocated their place in society and then a close eye was kept on them but the fact that there were squatters that punk subcultures 
um, probably around the Prenzlauer Berg area of East Berlin as well. Um, yeah, it's people tend to think of East Germany as this Orwellian state, like in 1984. But the what we find is that there was room for manoeuvre for people. Obviously, if you hit up against the borders of the dictatorship, then you would suffer the consequences. But it's sometimes surprising the freedoms that people had without actually being totally free. Yeah. No, absolutely. Talking of the the state, we're now looking aboard with power, and I particularly like the main image on here, where um, the traffic has come to a standstill for the black limousines of the party and state leadership, who are not in Trabants or Vartbergs, but they're in nice Swedish Volvos, symbols of uh, capitalism. But I suppose Sweden was safe. Um, I, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it certainly wasn't. Well, I don't really know that much about Sweden's role. It was still in the West, but I think maybe what you tend to find with the party, the the big men in the party was, well, it, it might have been from the West, but it didn't matter to them. I mean, when you go into the, I think when they went into the compound in Pankow after 1990, they found a lot of Western items, Western films, things like that. So what was restricted for the normal or the ordinary people, if you were big enough and powerful enough, seems that there weren't, weren't that much restrictions. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're, you're right there. But by Western leadership standards, it wasn't overly extravagant, I think. you know. So we're just moving around and having a look at some of these um, other boards. This one here is an, in, an interesting one. This one's headlined Lies, and um, it's sort of highlighting some of the uh, sort of contradictions inside the East German state, particularly... Um, there's one image here which is which is quite impactful. Some chill, a, a child being shown how to use a AK-47 assault rifle, despite obviously the um, the the state saying that they're for uh, peace. Obviously, you know, East Germany is full of contradictions like this, Richard. Yeah, I mean that is that is a picture that struck me. It's uh, there's two soldiers that they've got. I think I don't know if that looks like some sort of grenade launcher as well. Um, and the child, maybe about nine or ten, is closely examining the the machine gun. And um, yeah, I know that military lessons or military training lessons were introduced in the late seventies. So the children were pra- practice throwing wooden hand grenades and things like that. But what the text here talks about on the lies is it talks about a children's book um, called Gelsomino in the Land of Liars, and it talks about cats are called dogs, and they're forced to bark. It says in the land of lies, everything is the opposite of what is what it normally is. I suppose it depends on your view of East Germany, the extent to which you believe that. I think, well, the Bundesstiftung Aufarbeitung are certainly very much of the opinion. Not that there was nothing good about East Germany, but they need to show show the bad things, I suppose. So I was talking to my colleague Tim Daly, actually in photo- the photography department here, and he was interested in the the slant that the captions actually put on your interpretation of the photographs. And I think maybe some of these captions do because of the, well, the German government has to be seen to not be supporting any sort of view of any positive view of East Germany. So I think the captions do actually affect our interpretation of what we see here. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I hadn't necessarily recognized that nuance there, but uh, I think, I I think you're, you're right on the, on that. The next one we're looking at is is captioned longing, and um, I think the photo that probably grabbed my attention was the East Germans gazing 
through the Brandenburg Gate towards um, West Berlin on this one? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on whether you think that would they have wanted to come back if they'd gone to the West. I think in 1989-90 when they went to the West, people did come back. Um, I know certainly in the 50s and 60s, people who had gone to the West, a large, well, not a large proportion, but tens of thousands of them did actually return. They returned under a cloud of suspicion, um, but they'd found that the life in the West that they'd hoped for, it, it hadn't quite turned out the way they thought it would it would turn out. I think from what I was reading, a lot of them lived in small villages in East Germany. I think about, I was reading the other day, actually 25% of the population lived in villages of less than 2,000 people. Um, so when they went to the West, they couldn't, or a proportion of them couldn't cope with the big Western cities and they came back. And certainly when I was in Magdeburg, I spoke to one woman who'd left in 1951 and came back in 1955 because she simply missed her home city. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. And it sort of also asked the question around the time of reunification where, you know, Neues Forum and others were trying to portray a third way of Germany and retaining uh, some of the areas where people felt were, were positive within East Germany and not totally going over to the West German way. Yeah, um, so those, yeah, the demonstrations in 1989 really did begin, or the aim was for societal renewal and not reunification. Uh, so they wanted, I suppose you could call it socialism with the human face, or certainly a new brand of socialism. And then only later, um, after the wall fell, did the idea of, of reunification come into people's minds. And then you've got Helmut Kohl promising blooming landscapes, which... One of my colleagues said the other day, uh, we're still yet to see these bloody blooming landscapes. Um, so, yeah, but it's in probably not a lot of people know that when the demonstration started in 89, it, it wasn't about reunification because I think it was the year before Hanukkah had said the wall would stand for another hundred years. No, no one ever, when the wall went up and when Germany was divided, no one believed it would last. But in 1989, no one believed that. German reunification would ever happen again? No, absolutely. I certainly didn't in my lifetime think that Germany would be reunified or that the Berlin Wall would fall. I think you're right. The more I look at these captions, the more I see how obvious or, or targeted in some way. I mean, this one here, Escape, obviously when you talk about East Germany, Escape gives the impression of uh, crossing the wall and, and going to the West. But this is more about Escape within East Germany of how life was, I think. I mean, one of the photos here is of somebody who's uh, comatose after uh, drinking alcohol and, uh, and and lying on the ground. Yeah, I mean, the, the captions, they're, they're certainly not sort of really hardcore anti-communist stuff. Um, I think the, um, the majority of the captions are fair, but, yeah, so boy, when we... Well, as a speaking as a historian, I always have to think about who's produced these sources and what is there any potential bias. Um, certainly, with this picture of the drunken East German on the floor, and we've got the statistic there: the average of I think it was twenty three bottle twenty three liters of spirits a year that every East German drank. Um, so we might not have there was no certainly not a, a drug problem in East Germany, but the drug was alcohol. Um, this. Uh, this picture at the top here, I don't know if Ian will put this on the show notes, um, 
is people running. It's the weather in Berlin is stormy. The wind whistles around the flag bearer. So it's a few people carrying East German flags and they're running for cover, I think. And this actually reminds me of that famous picture of Iwo Jima, the American soldiers yeah. raising the flags. And yeah. I really like this picture. I like the action in the picture as well. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's almost impressionist in its way because it's slightly blurred with the uh, the raindrops falling down. Um, and it looks like it's on Alexander Platz. That looks like the house des Leolus. Oh, there's a sign saying Alexander Platz. See, I'm not even looking at the photos properly. Really obvious. Now, I've done quite a few interviews with um, people from East Germany and talked about their childhood, and there's certainly a great fondness around their childhood experiences. I, I, okay, it's a limited number of people I've spoken to, but I've yet to have somebody who's had a really negative childhood yeah i mean i suppose we all look back on our childhoods as times when when life was simpler and we didn't have the worries that you would have as an adult um i'm sure though that well for example young people if you fell foul of the party you might be sent to a jugendwerk or so a youth correctional facility and so there were about three thousand of these around east germany and that if you were sent there you were sent there because you were refusing to conform. Um, you would be subjected to, well, you'd be in prison, solitary confinement. Abuse was uh, the order of the day in these places. So it just, uh, even though it was a, a dictatorship, it really, you could talk to 10 different people in the street in England and they would have 10 different experiences of their childhood, but that probably a lot of them would think back to it as as a happy time, but you would probably find a couple of them would have negative experiences. So what you have to think about is get down to the level of ordinary people. And I was saying to Ian before, you have to, could you come to terms with the fact that you couldn't express a negative political opinion? The majority of people probably could come to terms with that fact. The majority of people might not be as interested in politics as, for example, Ian or I might be. So for the majority of people, there were limits to their life, and we can't deny those limits, but but that's why they would look back on their time and think, well, well, it was a pretty much a normal life. Yeah, no, absolutely. So just looking at, at this one here, and this is one of the photos that really did strike me, and I think it's on the cover of one of uh, Harold Hauswald's books as well, um, this caption is entitled Sadness, and the photo is of three commuters on the U-Bahn in um, East Berlin. And I think you'd probably get a very similar image on the London Underground, to be honest, if you took something like that in the 1980s. I don't think there's any change there. These three guys look pretty um, knackered from their day at uh, at work. Yeah, I mean, the the guy in the middle just looks completely fed up. It looks like he's injured his hand somehow as well. So he looks like he's not having a great day. Um, something that I've just noticed here, actually, is one of the pictures is of a man um, taking bottles out of a bin. And you see this regularly in, in Germany today, actually, because you can get the fant, which is the, you can get your deposit back. Uh, I didn't know that happened in East Germany, actually. So that's new to me. One of the final pictures on this board is of a, of the remains of a lot of Trabant vehicle bodies. So, I mean, I suppose you've got the contrast here, sadness before 1989 um, with, well, sadness on the, on the commute after work. And then we've got sadness after it, 1989, the sort of the stripped body, uh, the, the embodiment of East Germany, the Trabant is on the scrap heap. 
yeah, a product that was so sought after four years prior to this photo being taken and is now completely on the, on the scrap heap. Now, this this next group here, community, um, the impression I get is, is that whole community or purpose of community was a very big part of East German society. Yeah, that's what you find when you talk to former East Germans. They say the the community spirit was better. Um, but what I did find interesting, actually, from one of the previous episodes of the Cold War Conversations is the the woman who lived in the tower block, I can't quite remember her name, she said, well, if the sense of community was so strong, why did it break down immediately after 1990? So I think it's a bit of both, really. But then um, people of the older generation, perhaps in the UK, might might complain there's no sense of community here anymore. Um I suppose maybe you've got to think though that the the sense of community in East Germany was it was forced on them perhaps they had to be a part of the community there was no very little option to withdraw from that community although some something that I did find interesting from a research into crime in East Germany was that um there was one report about inner city estates and one party official said there are some people who withdraw and we don't know where they are and i find that we have this image that everybody's registered everybody's on a list but this party official is saying in these inner city estates uh, because of the living conditions um and the types of lifestyles they promote that they didn't know where certain people were so these are people disappearing off the radar and that might come into the whole squatter piece that we were we were mentioning earlier i guess the other thing around community is you can look at it with a different meaning in east germany as well around because of shortages of parts and things like that people had to work together or cooperate together in order to just make things work yes yes so um if well if you take the trabant for example um it was difficult to get a trabant a full car it's difficult to get spare parts something funny though is um, i was recently looking at crime files in magdeburg and there were a lot of reports of Trabants being stripped. Uh, so the Trabant would be parked on the edge of the street and then the owner would come out the next morning and not just the wheels had gone, but the wing mirrors and the aerial and maybe, I think in one case, the windscreen had gone. So the, it had been completely stripped of all of its parts. Yeah, so not quite the sense of community I was aiming at there anyway. Um, so we're just walking over to some of the other panels here. And th this one's an interesting one. This one's called loneliness. And obviously a lot of the socialist imagery is around, um, you know, people working together and is a lot about uh, younger people or the youth. But this portrays quite a, a dark view of or a Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com 
slash donate to find out more. A, a view that we'd probably recognize nowadays amongst um, older people, and, and that's just being on their own and losing contact with their families. Yeah, I mean, we've got one caption here for the East German state. People who have retired from working life are no longer important. Um, we certainly see that reflected in the policy of letting pensioners travel to the West because if they don't come back, well, the economy hasn't lost out. Um, but as Ian said, yeah, these, they lived in a dictatorship, but these were people just like you and me. Um, sometimes it's, it's difficult to forget that. It's difficult to remember that. Um, and we've got to also remember they weren't either perpetrators or victims. There were a lot of people who weren't either or in between. But yes, yeah, so it, it was a society like any other society, but also it was a society like no other society. It's, it's this inherent contradiction in East Germany that is, I think, that a lot of people find fascinating. It's interesting here about saying that uh, life was particularly difficult for single women after a hard-working life. They receive a miserable pension. This minimum pension was only 280 marks, and it's hardly possible to live on that pension. That's not the impression you you always you, you know you always you always get about um, life in East Germany. Um, so the the next one is is uh, entitled Order, and what's quite interesting here is there's a, a familiar image of exuberant uh, football fans which again is nothing different to both sides of the wall um, but I understand that they did have crowd trouble and they did have problems with football hooligans even in East Germany uh, yeah I think so yeah I don't know a great deal about the subject but obviously any place where a large number of people were gathering perhaps having had a drink there was potential for some sort of trouble if we just think about what I was saying about the captions here we've got We've got the football fans, and it says exuberant fans of Union Union Berlin posing in the Alter First High Stadium under the watchful eye of the authorities, whose batons at their belts are not just for decoration. Well, I could take a fo- uh, photograph at a football match today, and there would be police with truncheons. Um, so, not I'm not obviously condemning the Bundesstiftung because we're very grateful to have the exhibition and what a lot of the stuff here that they've done is is very good, but. That just doesn't. That doesn't just apply to dictatorships. That applies to supposed free societies as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. Ab- absolutely. Um, so farewell is the one we're um, looking at here, and this is uh, a number of images um, after the fall of the war, or around the time of the fall of the war, when when the uh, the demonstrations were starting and again there's an another image of a trabant sitting in a skip symbolizing the the loss of value for that have you got any uh, comments on this one richard i was just going to mention the trabant actually in the skip so the i suppose the east german way of life um is consigned to the scrap heap there as well um yes yeah, so we've got demonstrators as well in front of the palace de republic in in east berlin and of course, we know that that's not there anymore. It was torn down, and a lot of these symbols of East Germany, because because they were taken away, the people or some people felt that their their lives were somehow invalidated. Their what they'd experienced, they were telling, they were being told that well, that was completely wrong. Um, and with the Palace of the Republic being pulled down, 
I spoke to the head, well, not the head, but I spoke to someone quite senior in the organization that's rebuilding the Berliner Schloss. Mm. Um, and he said, I asked him, um, he was a West Berlin, and I said to him, I spoke to him in the summer, and I said to him, can you tell us about the building that was here before? And he said, uh, well, the castle was here before, the Palace of the Republic was just a temporary measure. Um, and... Then I said, well, wouldn't it have been good to keep the Palace of the Republic f for historical interest? And he said, well, there's a big car park in front of it. You can't have a big car park in the cultural center of Berlin. Yeah, now that, that's an interesting view because, I mean, obviously there are some of the socialist memorial architecture is still retained, certainly within Berlin. I mean, Ernst Talman Park is still there and uh, Marx and Engels, although they've been moved slightly, are still around in what was is it still called Marx Engels Forum or not anymore okay not sure about that um, sometimes I think about the memorials in East Germany would be quite nice to maybe have some of the Lenin statues still there but with some historical context as well um, certainly I wouldn't have any Stalin statues up um, but with Lenin you could have I don't, well what we see here today some historical text contextualising it would be be quite nice to see that sort of thing. I was always surprised. Did they actually make any Albrecht statues or not? Not that I know of. No. Sorry, putting you on the spot uh, there. But no, no, I, I, I can't, I can't think of that. No, there, there were plans to, for an Otto Gotthold statue, um, which never came to fruition. I think that was in the late, in the mid to late eighties. Surprised Albrecht didn't commission any of his own statues. Yeah, I was going to say, seem to be well, fond of the. Culture of personality, anyway. I suppose his greatest monument was the Berlin Wall. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Um, the board we're looking at now is cheerfulness. And this, this one has probably got one of my favorite photos on here, which is of a uh, cheeky soldier of the NVA um, with his um, thumb up at the, uh, at the camera. Yeah, I like this one as well. Um, you sort of imagine these... I imagine them as robots, I suppose. And I think in, um, I was actually listening to one of the Spybury podcasts um, where they went to, I think it was a Len Dayton tour of mm -hmm. Berlin. And um, there was a West Berliner there and he said, and he's German border guard smiled at him. And he said that he felt like maybe that was the end of, it was coming to an end now that the, I think it was in 1986, mm -hmm. um, the border guards were smiling. They were beginning to show a human side. I, I suppose that's a highly subjective point of view to take, but now I like this picture because it's just like a young man in a uniform, like might we, like we might see here. Well, we do have an interview coming up on Cold War Conversations. Might be in January. We'll be publishing that with somebody who did cross the border quite a few times and built a relatively friendly relationship with some of the regular border guards he saw. So. Uh, Stay tuned for that one. Um, the board we're looking at now is Contradictions. And uh, this is showing a number of uh, images here. One showing the, the wall or a big hole in the wall with a border guard the other side, obviously post um, 9th of November. But there's, there's also images here. And th this one almost is out of uh, Goodbye Lenin here. And I wonder whether that's where they got the idea of the... Um, of the uh, the Lenin statue passing the uh, Coca-Cola signs and things like that, which is a religious Christian statue on the back of a van passing uh, the big Lenin 
statue at uh, Lenin Platz, which I think is now United Nations yes, Platz or something yes. like like that in uh, Berlin. Sorry, testing my Berlin knowledge here. Have you got anything to add on this one, Richard? Um, just really this whole idea of contradiction. Um, a lot of contradictions in East German society, certainly as... Um, a lot of these pictures are in black and white, but I think when you look at these things and you read about East Germany, it wasn't it wasn't black and white. There were many shades of grey, um, and I think it's fine to talk about those shades of grey so long as you don't forget the the obvious aspects that need to be condemned: the Stasi and the Berlin Wall. Um, but you can't condemn everybody in East Germany um, simply because not everybody supported the state. Everybody lived their own lives. Um, so I think what we try to do today as historians or a certain school of historians try to get in amongst the ordinary people, the ordinary lives and just talk about the the variety of experiences that people lived in East Germany. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I hope we have given you a flavor of this exhibition. Um, Richard, how long is this exhibition open until? Uh, it's open till um, next Thursday, so I think it's 22nd of November. Um, it's not open tomorrow, which is Sunday. But, um, by the time this goes out, that'll be yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so it's open 9 till 4 on uh, until the 22nd of November uh, at the Kingsway campus of Chester University. Okay, and I really recommend you come along. It's well worth seeing these images. I will put some links on the show notes showing some of these images for those that um, can't make it. And as it is a sort of almost a travelling exhibition, if it is available in your locality, I do recommend uh, that you have a look at it. But Richard, thank you very much for talking with me today. Okay, thanks. It's uh, been a pleasure. And I'd just like to finish by saying thanks for the podcast series. I find it really fascinating and I don't know whether people often thank you for it, but thank you. He's embarrassing me now. I'm, I'm going to have to edit that bit out. But thank you very much, Richard. I really appreciate it. I'm here with uh, John at the Totally East exhibition. He's just had a look at the uh, exhibition. What What are your first impressions? Yes, well, it uh, brings back a lot of memories of how it was when I first started going to East Germany, which was, you know, before the wall came down, and I went really in search of uh, steam trains. And uh, there was a lot of steam in East Germany, and we went a lot to West Germany before that and gradually moved further and further east in pursuit of our hobby, and, and how did you find East Germany at that time? What, what, what were your impressions? Well, it was uh, always felt very secure there anyway, but uh, going through the, uh, <coughs> through the borders was obviously quite um, worrying at times, and uh, especially on the trains. And uh, once you were in there, everything was all right, as long as you had accommodation booked overnight, and uh, as long as you aimed to get to where you were supposed to be staying, that was all right. You had to register with the police, but you could do that for a whole week at a time. That was done in Alexanderplatz in Berlin. And then you were pretty well a free agent. You were supposed to go to wherever you were booked overnight. So you didn't necessarily actually end up there because we spent a lot of time on the trains and did overnight trips on the trains because you could uh, go right across the country. Um, you... And you were freely allowed to take photos of railway infrastructure and trains? Oh, yes, yeah. There was, there was really no problem at all. The only problem we ever had was uh, we were over on, right on the east side 
in the region of around Gurlitz and um, uh, there was a very steep bank out of Gurlitz a lot of steam activity on freight trains and uh, we just happened to get into a uh, into the middle of an, a Russian army exercise that was going on and they actually thought we were locals because they didn't uh, they didn't know the difference between German and English had they realized we were English they might have got more worried but uh, we just uh, had to be escorted off the site where they were in the woods and uh, that was that that was the only problem we ever had right well that that sounds like a, a great story I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing that thank you thanks very much yeah I'm here with Ellie, who's just seen the exhibition. Ellie, what, what, what's your impression of what you've seen here? Um, it reminds me in lots of ways of bits I've seen either on the television or things I've heard from uh, my second cousins who live over there in Germany. I was quite impressed. And um, also seeing the parts of the Trabi, how much the Trabi was such a big thing for them. They had to wait for so long. And um, since my husband has got now a trabby, uh, talking to, to them over there is their memories when they were children, when they were in the car, as small as it is, sometimes two, three children still in their trailer at the back, a roof rack and going on holiday. So all of this really represents a lot from the things I have heard or seen on television before. And did you visit your relatives in East Germany? Uh, yes, I did, but I did not do it before the wall came down. We went straight after. But before the wall came down, I went to a place near Hof. Hof is um, where the East German, close to where the East German border, the Czech and the German border came mm -hmm. together. And my uncle took us to a village which had the same problem a bit like Berlin. It was completely cut in half by a wall. And it was very hard for me at the time to see. You could see across the field and you could see the chicken and the farm at the other end and you could see people and you were not even allowed to shout hello. And we were watched by watchtowers all the time. A few years later, the wall had come down and we went again, and my cousin took me, approaching a different way, coming into the village, and I would have never believed it was now one again. Mm. And I think it was quite a famous village. Just this year, there was a big television program. They had made two films about this village, actually, in Germany. Was that the drama series yes. that they had? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember the name, but yes, I did, I did watch it. I yes. hadn't realised it was based on a real village. Yes. yes, it was very much based on a real village. And they also then had, when we went the second time, they had a museum there with part of the wall and you could see all the, uh, all the fences. And it was quite shocking to realise that people that close had to live in that sort of way mm. and how it was just from one side to the other you just suddenly your friends everybody was just uh, you know it, it's really bad and I also remember very well when I was a child when the actual wall was built that day you know how you watch television and couldn't believe it that children were with their grandparents perhaps and suddenly there was a wall there and all of this it's quite shocking so where, where did you live in that period? Uh, in that period, I lived near Cologne. 
but I also had, an, for instance, I had an aunt who, whose parents lived in East Germany, and I think at the beginning of the 50s, um, you obviously you still could visit, but it was more difficult. And I remember that she came back once she told us she came back via, I don't know if it was the 50s or still perhaps the end of the 40s, I will not, can't say for sure, but uh, she had people, people let them through the woods and trying to go back into West Germany. So it was, you know, you had, in a way, when I was young, I lived with all these sort of memories of people or experience they had. So you were going to tell me, Ellie, about the day the wall came down. Well, first of all, uh, I watched it on television. It was very, very emotional for me. I just couldn't believe it. But later on, we've met some friends from East Germany who lived with us in, um, here in England. And one day we talked about the wall came down and he said, oh, it was fantastic. We all went up. We went out, uh, had drinks and everything and climbed on the wall and hacked along on the wall. And then his partner said, well, I didn't know anything about it. I just slept and I woke up in the morning and suddenly it all had happened. She had no idea while he had the whale of a time and it was just amazing for them. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, that, those are really interesting stories. I really appreciate you sharing it with us, Ellie. Thank you very much. Um, I'm here now with Austin, who is a student at Chester Austin. University, I believe. Yes, and uh, what are you studying? Uh, I study modern languages. So I study three languages, French, German and Spanish. Uh, but German I absolutely love. Uh, I have two lecturers that are really kind of passionate about, about this subject, about East German history, uh, which gave me kind of the, the passion to go and kind of investigate this on my year abroad. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's just really interesting to have the exhibition on today. So you're really interested in East German history and you went into the former East Germany? I did indeed. So I did my year abroad uh, in Zwickau. I worked for VW for six months uh, as an intern in, within logistics uh, and I actually, because my project and a lot of my research at undergraduate and hopefully at postgraduate uh, is going to focus on, on East German history and kind of nostalgia uh, so I did a lot of research and, and, and interviews with, with some of the old, of my colleagues that used to work in, in the Trabi factory uh, at the time so it was really interesting to kind of see, hear their points of view and what it was like and how it was different to kind of modern day uh, Production, uh, so it's yeah, it's it's just it's just really interesting to kind of see also because in in East Germany a lot of these events happen all the time, whereas in Britain we don't really have these events. So it's really interesting to kind of meet people here today that are, that are kind of doing that are kind of really interested in the history and obviously in the car as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what do you make of the exhibition? It's absolutely outstanding. Uh, you know, the, it's part of obviously the Alpharbeitung, uh, kind of uh, from from Germany. So it's really it's really interesting. It enables us because a lot of the pictures are from Berlin and Dresden. It enables us to see what the society lived uh, and experienced, and what the city life was like for the people of the GDR. And I think a lot of the time, the the, the dialogue that we hear uh, is quite negative about the GDR. Uh, and obviously, you know, it's not to not to condemn or condone it, but it's kind of looking at what kind of giving us kind of a lens into what that life was like for the people how they live
lived and kind of for us to understand perhaps some of the things that, that, that happened uh, and what's, what's particularly attractive to me is that every title on the poster uh, and that really supports kind of the research that I do regarding the, the, the Tabant uh, is that, that, that all of these words are reflected in the car and the car personifies all of these words that we're talking about so kind of this idea of power the idea of loneliness and community and things like this are really personified either in the GDR times or after the wall came down mm-hmm. that the car personifies it so it's mm-hmm. been for my research really really useful mm-hmm. great well thank you very much austin really appreciate you much. coming on the podcast thanks very much thank you i was a student in bonn in 1963 and went on a trip to berlin with uh, a lot of other foreign students and we went over to east berlin <coughs> and we went to the theatre there, to the uh, Schiffbauer Dam Theatre, which is Brecht's theatre. And on the way back, you had to be back over the border, back uh, by 12. And we, we were in plenty of time. But as you came towards the border, you felt if you make a, a wrong move now, if for some reason you start moving more quickly than you have been down the street, then you could be in real trouble. It was an eerie feeling. Mm. Um, but fortunately, I just kept at the same pace. And you made it across before midnight like Cinderella? I did, yes, and the, the rest of us did too, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what did you make of East Berlin in that trip? It was drab and grey. Um, I think it was the Stalin Alley where the facades of the, the uh, Hochhäuser were falling down because... They hadn't been put up properly. Um, the most Im- impressive thing I saw was the Soviet uh, War Memorial, the Soviet cemetery. Um, but I don't think I saw anything in East Berlin which was memorable from an architectural point of view. So was that the cemetery at Treptow Park? Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, massive. Yeah. yeah, no, that is a very impressive uh, structure, that. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. You're very welcome. I'm here with uh, Mike at the uh, Totally East exhibition, and I'm delighted to hear that he's already a listener to Cold War Conversations. So, Mike, what what did you make of the exhibition? Um, I thought thought it was absolutely uh, fascinating. Obviously, I've seen quite a lot of um, information, photographs, films, read books about East Germany in the past. Um, but I think this gives like a really interesting insight to other sides of life uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And obviously, the the DDR is something specifically interesting to me, so it's uh, been really good to come along today. Great. And uh, were there any particular images that that stuck out for you as a as a good representation of life in the East? Um, I'm quite interested in like the, the contrasts between. Uh, how particularly like young people lived at the time um there's some pictures of like punks and there's uh, sections on the rebellious nature of young people and that contrasts with the more kind of regimented side of life particularly for young people who were members of the fdj and the parades that they were involved in and the part they played in kind of keeping the the Marxist Leninist sort of doctrine alive and and visible and representing that in everyday life. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, there, there's a, a lot of the viewpoints on East Germany is the whole oppressiveness, but then, you know, life went on. and Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I often notice is that even though there was obviously a very sort of dour atmosphere in a lot of the Eastern Bloc, there's many photos where life looks pretty similar to how it would have been in the UK during the 80s. You know, we were quite famous for not having great fashion sense or great hairstyles and things like that. And obviously it was a very politically tumultuous time over here. Uh, but I think what makes it interesting for me is that particularly the DDR was on the front line of this great ideological battle and this great social experiment that so many people invested their lives in and their hopes in. And unfortunately, it didn't uh, come to fruition. So um, do you fancy doing a Cold War Conversations quick fire round if I ask you your favourite Cold War movie? It would definitely be The Lives of Others because I think I've seen that maybe six or seven times. And it's just a film that I will never... It's a bit like The Godfather. Never get tired of watching it. Mm. Um, and I kind of try and show it to to various mates um, and most of them seem to think it's pretty good but I think just the story the acting in it is all fascinating and I think the way they depict life in uh, East Berlin is just spot on obviously I'm too young to know what it would have been like because I was born in 1984 but that I love anything that kind of gets me into the mindset of what it would have been like to have been there at the time and that film really does that yeah, and I think the ending is particularly strong as as well. Um, if you had to choose a soundtrack to a Cold War movie you were producing, what would you choose? Mm. Um, it's a tricky one because I love um, films like The Epicurus File. I think the soundtrack to that is fantastic. Um, but I do also, well, I do have a kind of soft spot for East German rock music. Um, I've got quite a few playlists on Spotify that I listen to every now and then. So depending on what era the film was, it would either be something like a Len Dayton-style film adaptation, that kind of soundtrack, or something by one of the East German bands like Karat. Okay. No, those are good choices. Um, so if you were going to invite three people to have a beer with and talk about the Cold War from any period during the Cold War. They can be living or dead. Who would you choose? Definitely Stalin. I have a lot of questions for him, not least because he actually imprisoned my grandfather um, when the Soviet Union invaded Poland. So he's got a lot to answer for then, there's a... Yeah. Probably Marcus Wolf, because I think he's a fascinating individual. He's, he's almost like a sort of Albert's beer character and that he seems to kind of be quite genuinely motivated by sort of doing good so he's arguably a good spy um, in the same way that Albert Speer is often seen as a good Nazi if that mm. is something you can even possibly comprehend um, but I think he's such a fascinating person and someone who doesn't seem to fit the caricature of someone who's running uh, a military intelligence service um, and then the third one would probably be somebody like Eric Honecker or even uh, Eric Milke, who's again another interesting guy. I think the Stasi's, for all its horrors, is like a fascinating subject. Um, 
and every time I go to Berlin, I always go and visit the Stasi headquarters in uh, Normannenstrasse, and I think it's fascinating seeing where Melka worked, seeing the bed he slept in when he was staying at the headquarters, his office. Um, so it would just be interesting to talk to him, because obviously he he had a long history of uh, activism in the communist movement before East, East Germany was established as a, as a state. So I think that'll probably make for quite an interesting a few hours discussion. That's an that's a very interesting trio, right? Um, one more question is what what is your your favourite episode of Cold War Conversations so far? Favourite episode in the episode where you interviewed Khrushchev's son was particularly fascinating. I think any time when you speak to someone who's related to somebody who's so important in the geopolitical history of the world. It's fascinating. I had a very, very brief email correspondence with Stalin's, I think it was great, great grandson. Um, I can't remember his name now, but his surname was still Yugashvili. And he's an artist. This is going back a few years. And that was just like fascinating to be talking to someone who was related to somebody so important in history. But I think you know, Khrushchev is a fascinating character. And hearing his son talking about um, his memories of what it was like at that time was really fascinating. That's great. I appreciate that. I mean, surprisingly, it's not one of the most popular episodes, which I was surprised at considering it was, you know, I was talking to somebody who had had seen some major pieces of history, but, you know, it, it, it goes that way sometimes. But thank you very much. That's been really great. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Right, I have uh, Grant with me, who is a listener to Cold War Conversations, as well as being an author as well. So, uh, Grant, first of all, what, what did you think of the exhibition? Yeah, I think it's, it's wonderful. It's something that you, you don't get to see um, very often these days. Um, so I have a snapshot of the, the DDR like this um, in one place. It's, uh, it's, it's great to come and see and, and, and to meet the other people here as well. And were were there any images that you found particularly striking that you saw in the exhibition? Well, there's always a favourite of the um, Harold Housewald is the, uh, the the one on sadness when the, the people are sat on the um, on the S-Bahn. I mean, obviously it's it's, it's not um, a depiction of life in the DDR as such, but the, the pictures uh, it tends to be one that that um, people go back to. But it is an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting picture. But I mean, the, the ones on subculture, I don't think people realise, for example, how um, how important. Um, the punk culture was, and also the um, the squats. You know, mm. people hear about it a lot in in Kreisberg, in, in West Berlin, mm. but not so much in in East Berlin. Um, and I, I thought one of the poignant things from the um, from, from the sides about the, the subculture was to say that that there's a photograph there where people saying they've actually left East Berlin in their minds already. They've just yeah. cut themselves off from society essentially, and that was their their own their own yeah. culture so there are many aspects that people think about um, the DDR in terms of the oppression mm. but there were clearly let's say um, parts of society who had already decided they'd had enough uh, of let's say of that part of the regime but they were still part of mm. what was the DDR 
Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think what's striking is the similarities between life in the GDR and Western life and the same social problems and and issues that 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 they had there and the the one of the um the guys on the uh, s-bahn i mean i was talking to richard earlier and um i was saying you could probably take in the same photo in the 1980s on the london underground without a doubt and, and the other thing is some of the photographs from the the 70s and 80s estates in in the uk um uh, are very similar i would say if not if not, um, let's say, worse economically than, than you see in the DDR. And, and that, a lot of that's about um, the message that's given. And I think everybody's looking at history in, in hindsight as well, which is a very easy thing to do. Absolutely. And in fact, actually, you've, you've made me think some of these images are very um, Donald McCullen-like in terms of some of the photos that, 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 that he took. Yeah. I, I mean, I just saw uh, a picture on Twitter this morning. I think it was from... From Brad from Bradford in 1972, and there's uh, a couple of kids by by a wall, and at the back of the wall it said "No Nazis in Bradford," and it's yeah. it, it just depicts everything. I, I mean, I was just saying to to my partner that when you're looking around, I you remember the 80s and before the mass regenerations you had in a lot of the cities. I mean, I'm, I'm from Leeds, and and when I see you around the the river area um, in the in the mid 80s, it was desperate. It was really desperate, uh, and it's not very much different to what you see in, in a lot of places in uh, in these photographs in East Berlin and, and West Berlin as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's easy to look on the, these with a you know 2018 vision, whereas you forget what actual life was like in non-Warsaw Pact countries during that period. So I mentioned earlier that you're an author. Do you want to just give a, a quick spiel on your books? Sure, yeah. Um, I've written, well, I've self-published two books, um, which are set around a particular family, uh, the Schultz family. Uh, usually each, uh, each of the books um, focuses on, on uh, the different characters. The first book, um, Caught in the Mousetrap, is set uh, basically over the weekend of the division of the city. So it follows different characters uh, within that. It's um, yeah, Eva Schultz, who is... Um, uh, on the on the eastern side of the wall, as it, or let's say the divide, as it as it happens, there's a, a Volks army colonel who's uh, involved in the process to seal off the, the city. And then, um, well, I don't want to spoil it too much, but essentially, it's set in 1961 around the division. The second book then goes back, telling the story of the family uh, at the end of the Second World War and essentially what happened in Berlin, um, April and May 1945. Uh, and a third book, which is um, set around the uprising, which is the final one in the trilogy, will be coming out on the uh, 11th of January 2019. So just finalizing everything on that side at the moment. Great. Well, um, I have read the first book before I even found you on Twitter or, or knew you. And I did enjoy it. And the detail is excellent. I really think you get the, the feel and the atmosphere of um, East Germany. Really appreciate your support of the podcast. Grant has been momentarily stunned by somebody walking in with a Stasi uniform, but uh, we're now back on message. Yeah, yeah I think um, I've enjoyed them all. Um, and I think I've yet, I've yet to listen to the one on the um, Khrushchev's son, which I'm uh, ready to listen to that. I think, um, was it Eileen, the student? Yes. That, I thought that was excellent. I really did. Um, interesting to, to you know bring to life... Uh, and to get a balance 
on what it was actually like in East Berlin. I, I think when you, you listen to what people say, actually, quite a lot of people are very positive. Mm. I, I worked with a colleague. Um, he would have been, I think, in his teens when the wall came down. I think his father was a relatively high official in, in the government. And, and when you listen to what, what they say, they were not particularly interested in the West. There were many things that, were, that interested them in the West, but they were also well aware of the poverty mm -hmm. and, and the things that went on in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in Western Europe that, that, um, that clearly didn't happen in the East. So, sure, uh, it, it's a balance. Um, I think the other podcast I like was the... Um, you did the one with the, uh, from West Berlin, was it? Okay, was it Max or Sammy? Sammy, yeah, yeah. that was uh, that was also interesting. I mean, it's very Berlin dominated for me because yeah. it's what I find fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I heard you talking about you know the different countries in you know, what you could do, some other ones you could yeah. do, but for me, Berlin is is obviously the uh, the, the most mm. interesting one. I would say. Okay, well, I'm trying to keep it varied, so I can't guarantee it's going to be Berlin and GDR no, no. all the time. But um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And um, I think we have to do an episode with you when you're ready to uh, publish episode three of your, um, your trilogy. Yep. We'll, uh, we'll do a show. That'd be great. Appreciate that. Great. Thank you. Well, that's the end of today's episode. But there's photos of the exhibition in the show notes. The show notes are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 36. If you like what you're listening to, do join our Facebook discussion group where there's loads more Cold War information and further discussions with listeners and guests. Just search Cold War Conversations. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. Lastly, thanks to our latest iTunes reviewers, namely Wombling Wurzel, The Gonzo Kid, and Wayne Sherwood. If you like what you're hearing, do leave reviews with your podcast provider or share us via social media. It really helps us increase awareness of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening and supporting us. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.